the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a rainy Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here every day at 4 o'clock on AM 630, the Word, to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. We make it as easy as we can. All you have to do is dial area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. Or you can call toll-free at 877 630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them to us that way. If you're driving in your car, especially when it's wet out there, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. It's just one button. Push Call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, because it's Tuesday, we don't have a bunch going on, so I'll just get right to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. My first question is from our email inbox, and it's from Eric. Eric says, should Mark chapter 16, verse 9, to the chapters in be in the Bible or taught? The earliest manuscripts don't contain the passage. And the transition from 8 to 9 is awkward. These ending verses don't sound like Mark. Uh, In parentheses, he adds that there are 18 words here that are never used anywhere by Mark. And the structure is very different from the familiar structure of his writing. The title, Lord Jesus, in verse 19, is never used anywhere else by Mark. Also, the reference to signs in verses 17 and 18 doesn't appear in any of the four Gospels. And there is a verse, verse 16, that sounds an awful lot like baptism being needed for salvation, which is not true. Considering these things, should it be in there and taught from the pulpit? Uh, Eric, let me work sort of from the back up. I, I think there's no danger in teaching Mark uh, chapter 16, this disputed passage uh, from the pulpit. It certainly doesn't contradict any of the other uh, parts of our faith. Um, I, 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 there's, there's nothing that's questionable in there. Um, um, I personally believe that it was added later by scribes. Uh, I also think that it might have been added much, much later. Uh, Either that or it was prophetic in the beginning. And if it was prophetic, it would describe, you know, Paul being bitten by the viper on the shore in Malta. Uh, Everybody expect him dropped dead and he did. I mean, those kinds of things happen. So there's no damage to teaching it. I do think, however, that when we're going to be very upfront and deal with with disputes like this. I think that we need to acknowledge, uh, as I would or did when I've taught in the Gospel of Mark, that this is a disputed passage and some of the manuscripts don't have it. Now, uh, I want to go to the other end of your thing. I'm not sure that um, the earliest manuscripts necessarily mean the best. You know, there's a logical way of thinking, Eric, that says... 
the older it is, the closer to the time of the apostles uh, would be, thus it would be uh, more uh, accurate or more factual. I don't really believe that's necessarily true. Um, what we've got is we've got two major sets of manuscripts, the the Texas Receptus or the uh, majority texts. Um, you find that in the King James and the New King James where this disputed passage uh, is there and, and most of the time it isn't identified as disputed passage uh, because that would be the set of manuscripts that the scribes would have added this to. And the other manuscripts um, the Alexandrian manuscripts, um, this passage doesn't appear anywhere. Um, and, and so it probably doesn't really belong there. Uh, if it contradicted anything that was in the Bible, then I think what we then ought to do is be a little more aggressive and say that it doesn't belong there. Um, and uh, uh, but, but, but there's nothing in those passages that would lead us to believe that there's anything heretical or anything unfactual, uh, anything that would contradict anything written anywhere else. Um, two things about Mark's Gospel that I want to share. Uh, first, Mark's Gospel is almost universally accepted as Peter's account of Jesus' ministry. So Mark the writer, Mark was the secretary, but, but his information would have come from interviews with Peter. It would be Peter's perspective. I think personally it's one of the reasons that, that Mark is so valuable. I also believe that it tells us a lot about Peter's personality. He was sort of straightforward and to the point and never beat around the bush. And that's the way Mark's written. It's one of the reasons that, that I often um, tell new Christians to go to the Gospel of Mark and read it first um, for those very reasons. The other thing I want to say about um, your statement about baptism being taught in verse 16 of, of uh, Mark 16. I'm going to read it and then um, then we'll we'll talk about it a little bit. It says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And, and people that say, well, you know, that sounds like baptism is required to be saved. Um, that's not at all what's being communicated. In fact, the, 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 the rest of the sentence after the comma, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, identifies clearly that believing is the basis upon which we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. We have that information throughout our New Testament uh, from cover to cover. So this isn't teaching um, that if you're not baptized, you won't be saved. Just the opposite, the condemnation comes for those who do not believe. If baptism was being taught there, Eric, then he would have said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. So this is an affirmation of salvation by grace through faith. Believing only is necessary. So I think if we read carefully, we don't fall into those traps. And I know that's what some of the denominations that believe baptism is a requirement for salvation would say. So that's, I hope, uh, answers your question, Eric. Um, whether it should be in there or not has been debated for 2,000 years. Some of the early church fathers um, uh, believed that it belonged there. Um, others of the early church fathers um, uh, we have recorded as saying they didn't believe it was there. I think by now it's almost universally accepted that this disputed passage uh, was not included in the original manuscripts of Mark. Thus, it shouldn't be there. Does it do any damage? No, it doesn't do any damage at all. But uh, we want to address these inconsistencies uh, because they're causing questions and doubt in some believers' minds. So, Eric, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Phyllis from our mobile app. Pastor Ron, in what order will these events come? The rapture of the church, the millennium reign of Christ, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. Fill us the order, and I'll try to be this as clear as I can, because to miss 
understand can lead to some confusion, especially as you're reading um, about the rapture in First Thessalonians. Uh, the first thing that's going to happen in terms of, of eschatology, the end times events, is going to be the rapture of the church. Phyllis, that could come at any moment, at any day. Uh, it could come now. I like to play around when I say things like that, take a pause, say maybe now. Oh, well, didn't come. But the rapture of the church is the next thing on the prophetic calendar of the church. That moment will come in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Without warning, it will come suddenly. We talk about Jesus' soon return for his church. We're not talking soon in terms of a time frame, but instead we're talking about soon in terms of suddenness. And the rapture of the church is next. The next thing that comes in your list is the Great Tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time where um, God's wrath will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. The church will be gone. And then the Great Tribulation begins, beginning in the fifth chapter, or the sixth chapter, really, of the book of Revelation, uh, through the 18th chapter, uh, is uh, the events that are described that will occur uh, during the Great Tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time. I emphasize that uh, because that's the last week, the 70th week of Daniel that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, after the Great Tribulation, um, verse 19, or chapter 19, rather, in the book of Revelation, is the second coming of Christ. He will come, we will be with him. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Uh, he will destroy the armies that initially gathered at Megiddo um, to um, uh, f fight each other. Well, they're going to turn their weapons on Jesus. So um, the second coming of Christ will interrupt that and, and order will be restored to this world. Uh, after the second coming of Christ will be the millennial reign of Christ on earth for 1,000 years. He will rule and reign. We will rule and reign with him. And then at the end of the thousand years, the enemy is going to be let loose for only a short time. People will have to make a choice. And then the final event will be the great white throne judgment um, where people will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's what we call hell. So, uh, Phyllis, I hope that makes it really, really clear for you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Natalie. She says, I visited a church recently that said the only Bible that should be used is the King James Bible. Is that true, and is this a church I should consider attending? Natalie, uh, it's not true. That's nonsense, and it's not a church that you should consider attending. Uh, King James-only churches are, 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 are illogical. They make no sense. Uh, people who take that position have lost the ability to logically think. Now, I want to be clear about something. I have no problem with the King James Bible. I love it. I love it. I, I was raised on that Bible uh, when I first got saved. Um, the, the, the language is so flowery. It's so memorable. Um, I've shared on this program before. I have a, 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 some eye problems, vision problems. And, and if I can't see my notes, uh, King James is what comes out of me. I'll just immediately just sort of shift into a King James gear because I have a lot of, of uh, Bible verses memorized in King James. A lot of the stories are memorized in King James. So I love the Bible. So I'm not saying that if you really love your King James Bible, there's anything wrong with it. But when you say it's the only authorized version of the Bible, that's when you've lost your ability to think logically. So no, this isn't a church. These kind of churches are typically very legalistic. Um, they, they just can't think well enough or communicate well enough to understand the damage of what they're saying. So, Natalie, I would not go back to that church at all. And I would tell you to read a Bible. Whatever Bible that you will read and use, that's the Bible that is the best one for you. Just make sure it is a, an accurate translation rather than a paraphrase. Uh, some of the newer um, translations are thought for thought 
rather than word-for-word translations. That makes it much easier for us to understand. It flows much more easily into our English language that way. Um, and, and we want to be able to understand. So I would not, Natalie, go to that church again. And uh, that's a nonsensical argument that the King James is the only authorized Bible. You know, if we thought about that logically, and I have used that, that concept a couple of times in my answer, Natalie, but it would mean, because the King James was written in 1611, it would mean that there was no authorized Bible before 1611. It would mean that there's no authorized Bible in any language other than English. And we know that's not true. The original manuscripts were written in Hebrew and Greek. So uh, King James is a great translation. It's just not the only one. Here is a question from our mobile app anonymously. Uh, What verse can I use to convince a fellow Christian that it isn't okay to smoke pot? In spite of what you say about it, it doesn't seem to matter. I need some scripture, please. Thank you. Uh, Anonymous, I'm going to have to get you the address of the scriptures, but we're we're to be sober. Be sober, be vigilant. Um, Being drunk with wine, uh, Paul tells us, is, is a sin. So those are the things that we need to rely on. There is no chapter in the Bible that addresses marijuana. It wasn't an issue during the time that the Bible was written. And here's what you have to understand. You can't convince this guy or this woman that it's not okay to smoke pot. And this man or this woman probably isn't a fellow Christian. That's the problem. He or she knows what they're doing is wrong. If the Holy Spirit lives in them, he will convict them of that. And then his answer or her answer would be, if they were honest, it would be, um, you know, I, um, I know it's wrong, I shouldn't do it, but I just don't want to give it up. At least that's honest. But when we try to rationalize or justify our position on marijuana, and, and when he says, show me a verse in the Bible, that's like saying, show me a verse in the Bible that says abortion is a sin. The word abortion doesn't appear in the Bible. Show me where being transgender is sin. Well, those concepts weren't thought of back then. So your friend, this fellow so-called Christian, needs to probably get saved. And I think the way I would approach him or her is simply to say this. Look, if you really believe you're saved, then ask Jesus about this. Pray. What does he say? Remember, he won't contradict his word, so he won't tell you it's not okay to be drunk with wine, but it is okay to be drunk with marijuana. He won't do that. And challenge them directly. Why do you insist as a professing Christian on being rebellious? And it's always going to come down to because I like it, or I want to do it, or it's the only way I can sleep, or it's the only way I can relax. That's a person who is in bondage to marijuana. Paul says that we are not to be in bondage to anything. All things are permissible, he says, but not all things are beneficial. And this isn't even one of those on-the-fence things that are permissible. This is something that God's people should never do. I get the same argument with people that insist on using foul language. Well, if they're just words, it doesn't matter. I can't break the habit. They don't want to break the habit. So, I would pray for your friend because it's unlikely that somebody can, when confronted with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit, it's improbable that they're really saved at all. The Spirit of God convicts us. So, again, there's no scripture that says, do not smoke marijuana. But it says, don't be drunk with wine. It also says, I will not be mastered by anything. It says to be sober, to be vigilant. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter chapter 4. So there's a panoply of applicable passages. But if he's looking for don't smoke pot, then he or she is just 
making excuses to do what they want to do. You know, it's one of the hardest things for me to deal with um, with professing believers because nobody's honest. Nobody would just say, you know what, I don't care what God thinks. I want to do this. I'm going to do it. And so often Christians just sin, make excuses for their sin. And they're being destroyed by an enemy. So pray for them. I think that's the most viable information that I can give you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is anonymous question. How do you justify God saying he loves everyone but sends people to hell to suffer? Anonymous, I've addressed this question so many times on the program Uh, I don't know why this is a difficult thing. Uh, People who ask these questions don't really know God. I I don't mean they're not saved. I'm not indicating you're not saved. But they don't know Him. God intentionally makes it difficult for people to go to hell. Literally, we have to go over His dead body. He offers salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone. Every person is born with a sin nature, which means by definition we're going to sin, and when we sin, we're separated from God forever. We're condemned already, Jesus says in John chapter 3. I think it's verse 16. And if we're condemned already, then all of humanity is going to hell. And Jesus throws us a lifeline. He died for the sins of the people he loves. Who did he die for? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish with everlasting life. He gave us the opportunity not to. Now, the reason people go to hell is because they reject Jesus. If Jesus is the only answer for sin and they choose not to, God is not going to override their free will. If they want nothing to do with God on earth, God's going to honor that request in eternity. But it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. So he didn't send anybody to hell. I think one of the other things we have to remember here is that his overarching attribute is holiness. Holiness. That means he has to judge sin. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps. Let's go to Tim in Live Oak. Tim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, Pastor. I had a comment and a question. Um, My comment is I have become even more frustrated with how many times the Lord's name is used in vain in popular media, movies, TV. It's like you can't escape anymore. I get upset because that means someone wrote it, someone directed it, someone acted, so there's no excuse. And my question was, do you have a historical reference on when this kind of basically started that of all names, that one name was used in vain so many times? Yeah. Tim, I, I, I do. You know, uh, well, I, I don't have a specific reference uh, as a date, but I've watched it change over my lifetime. I'm pretty old. So uh, I, I remember when Lucy and Ricky wouldn't sleep in, in one bed. Um, they had twin beds in their bedroom because that's how, how the, the, the world viewed things back then. But you've hit on one of my pet peeves. I was watching a brand new show that just came out uh, on television, uh, on network TV, NBC, uh, in prime time, and um, probably 10 minutes or 15 minutes into the show, um, they took God's name in vain, said GD, uh, and, and, and we know what that is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I won't watch a show. I turned it off immediately because it so distresses my heart. And Christians, we have become so desensitized to it. Let me tell you something else, Tim. We have a, a, a young woman, young to me, uh, in our church where a movie is actually being made about her life. 
uh, and in the script that was sent, and and they sent me a copy of the script so that I could I could view it and and wanted me to have any any comments on it, and and in this this movie that is taking a, a life of a girl young girl who was uh, famous where she lived and and um, uh, found Jesus um, got pregnant got saved. Uh, instead of aborting this child, she kept the child. She 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 gave her heart, her, and her husband, to Jesus. Uh, in that script, the writers of the script in a movie that's intended to honor God used GD as well. And I'm just devastated. And and of course, I say, well, you know, that's got to change. And and they've given me that kind of position in their lives so I could do that. So Tim, I don't know, but it just has broken my heart. You had another question, Tim. No, the question mainly was um, the historical thing, and the other one was why. I understand GD, that's bad enough, but when they use Jesus' name, I mean, they really just nailed it down to that one person, of course, the only Lord, and that's the only name I ever hear with blasphemy. And that just really distressed me even more. Tim, the devil is the prince of the air. I have a friend here at church who said, you know, you never hear anybody say, Hari H. Krishna. <laughs> I don't know any of these things. Um, but, but you're right. The world hates Jesus Christ. And um, there's no explanation other than that. Tim, thanks that you share that with me. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR let me say one more thing uh, regarding tim's question as Christians, uh, we live in this world. We're not of the world. Um, we, we shouldn't be prudes. We shouldn't expect the unbelieving world to uh, understand how much pain it causes us when our Lord's name is taken in vain. One of the things that we can do is look at the context. You know, even Christians will say, geez, and, and oh, Lord, and things like that. And, and I, you know, I know their hearts, um, and we can make a comment about it to them with the right spirit. But um, if I go to a movie, which is rare now because we first check to see if God's name is taken in vain, um, if, if, they, if the context is unintentional or, or not harmful, if they don't mean anything derogatory, uh, that's just the world that we live in. I can deal with that. Uh, regular curse words and stuff. That's the world that we live in. But there's something for me about GD that I simply cannot pay to watch something where Jesus' name, God's name, is taken in vain like that. I just can't. And I've walked out of a whole bunch of movies. It happened to us recently. Paul and I went to a movie that we actually checked out, and uh, I thought I checked pretty closely, and it didn't mention that God's name was taken in vain. Um, But 20 minutes into it, there it was. Uh, And we walk out. And you know what? We didn't go get our money back. We didn't complain. We just walked out. We, we, We don't have to to do that. It, I would rather somebody talk bad about Paula or me than to say that. And yet it's everywhere now, and it's network television. It used to be on cable, um, but, but it, it's just not that way anymore. So uh, they hate Jesus. Tim, that's, that's the answer. They hate Jesus. And those things are written in scripts. When I read the script that was sent to me, uh, in a movie that's intended to honor God. It's a, it's a movie that really is a testimony. When I read that script and saw it in print, it broke my heart. But that's just the way they think. That's just the way they write. It comes off of their lips like, 
um, it means nothing to them, and that's because God means nothing to them at all. They would respond. I've had scriptwriters say this to me before that I've had the opportunity to talk to. Well, you know, we're just trying to be genuine. That's the way people talk. Well, if they want me to pay my money, um, that's not going to be the way it was. I, I wish more Christians would take a stand uh, for that very thing. Here is a question from Bill. Pastor Ron, why do pastors not preach about racism and prejudice more? It seems like cowardice to me. Bill, I don't know what you expect. Um, do you expect a pastor to have a sermon about the evils of racism and prejudice? Um, the Bible, when it teaches about the unity of Christ's church or the necessity of loving all people, uh, we can teach about those things. But um, it's not cowardice. It's just our, our job, Bill, is not to preach about social evils. Our job is to teach the Bible, the Word, the Word, the Word. Uh, in our church, Bill, as you no doubt know, I'm married to a beautiful black woman. We've been together now for 48 years. And um, so it comes up a lot. We have an inordinate amount of mixed couples in our church, not just black and white, but all different mixes of people. And almost without failure, when we introduce ourselves to people, they let us know that they're here because they looked us up online and saw that we were a mixed couple. They knew they'd be comfortable here. Um, regularly, and I, I can only talk for this one preacher, regularly I tell people that if they remain prejudiced, they haven't met Jesus. It's that simple. I can't say it any more clearly than that. If you are prejudiced against a race of people, you don't know Jesus. That means you're not saved. Because he loves people. He gives you his heart. The Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5 5 says, pours out his love into our hearts. And if that's the case, then it's his love, not our limited love, that should come from us. And the man or the woman who holds on to being prejudiced, whether he is white, black, Hispanic, or from some other country, Asian, that man or that woman hasn't met Jesus. It's that simple. I, I don't know how I could be more direct about it. And it comes up a lot. There's plenty of opportunities. God shows no favoritism. There's no Greek. There's no Jew. There's no male or female. All we have to do is understand his heart, have his heart, and we won't. But, Bill, a pastor's job, a preacher's job, is to declare Jesus, not to declare all the problems. I get this question from time to time about other specific, why don't pastors preach more against pornography? Or why don't pastors preach more about social justice issues? It's not our job. Our job is to give people Jesus. You remember when the Gentiles, the Greeks, came to Jesus' disciples and wanted an audience with Jesus, and I'm going to use the King James here. It says, sirs, we would see Jesus. My opinion, that ought to be on every pulpit. My pulpit's not wide enough to put it on there, but, but, but that's the heart behind the pulpit. I don't want them to see me. I don't want them to see my ideas, my opinions, or my pet topics. I want them to hear and see Jesus. He's front and center. And any church that hasn't put Jesus front and center, any church that has anything else that they preach about, has lost their way. Here is another anonymous question. Do you think God gets mad at me when I miss church? No, I think it's more like... Jesus wondering why you stood him up. You had a date. But you stood him up. I think he's disappointed. Hebrews 10, 25 tells us not to forsake the assembly together of the saints. But God doesn't get angry. We need to really consider his character, his nature. God is patient 
God is loving, God is kind, He's eager to forgive, but the question for you, Anonymous, is why do you miss church? Is it because you stayed out too late Saturday night sinning? Or is it because you stayed in bed Sunday morning because you were lazy? That's a sin. Slothfulness is sin. But don't you think that even you asking the question is an indication that the Holy Spirit is saying, let's go to church. It's amazing to me the things that Christians put ahead of our Jesus. So he doesn't get angry, but I'm certain he feels stood up. If Jesus were like us, and he's not, but if Jesus were like us, he would say things like, what did I do to make him or to make her forgive me? What did I do to they would not show up and serve the body that I died for? I'd ask one of the question, if you think Jesus' pleasure with you or his disappointment in you is caused by the things you do or don't do, you're missing the point. Jesus just wants you to love him back. And the Christian who would rather stay in bed than go to church. I know our flesh would rather stay in bed. I'm a pastor, and there are some times when I don't want to get out of bed. Paula keeps telling me, you've got to go, Ron. you got to go. But Jesus wants you to make that sacrifice. You know, whenever we talk about worship or praise, it's a sacrifice of praise. In the Old Testament, every time you talked about worship, somebody died or something died, an animal died. All we have to do is understand that we have to die to our flesh and do what he wants instead of what we want. And if we'll do that, Anonymous, then you'll feel the smile of God in your life. So no, he doesn't get mad. He's not a person like you're a person or I'm a person. He doesn't get impatient or get frustrated. I think he's just sad. Why doesn't she want to hang out with me? Here is a question from Esther. Pastor Ron, how is it possible to pray without ceasing, as Paul says to do? Uh, Esther, he doesn't mean by that, pray without ceasing, doesn't mean to be praying for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What he's talking about is what I often say, just be with Jesus. When you're with Jesus and you're talking to him, that's what prayer is. So it means always to be aware of his presence, always to be talking to him and listening for him in case he has something he wants to share with you. Prayer is not something we should feel guilty about if we don't do it enough. Prayer is a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege that we have. I can talk to Jesus. You know, if you called um, me today, Esther, and and um, somebody picked up the phone and said, uh, and you said, can I talk to Pastor Ron? Um, Today was an exceptionally busy day. And so they probably would have said, well, he's in a meeting right now. Can he call you back at his convenience? Jesus never does that for us. He's always there. He wants you to take him to work with you. If you have a job, he wants you to wake up with him and and spend the day with him and go to bed with him. He wants when you're out walking or when you're out in the the grocery store and just looking into people's eyes, he wants you to talk to him about them. And the idea is simply to remember always that Jesus is with us and we're with him and conversation will ensue. So it's an attitude. It's not just words. It's an attitude of being in his presence. And that's how we do it. You know, when Paul, who's the one who told us to do this in writing to the churches in Thessalonica, um, we have a lot of Paul's prayers, and they give us just a sample of his prayer list. 
And he always found time, in spite of how busy he was, he always found time. And somebody said to me one time, well, how did he find that time? You know, Paul didn't have modern transportation. Paul didn't have a car radio or, or earbuds in his ears when he was driving someplace to, from one ministry location to another. He either rode horses or walked, or maybe rode along in a wagon. And he had all kinds of time to pray. Esther, when you go to work tomorrow, you can, with the first person you meet at work, you can begin talking to Jesus about him. Lord, bless him. Lord, bring him to you. Lord, oh, the pain in their life. Would you show them who you are? I mean, you, you can begin. And here's one of the things I tell people here at Calvary Chapel all the time, that if you take Jesus to work with you, work no matter how mundane the work, no matter how boring, no matter what you're getting paid, work will be a place where you experience the presence of Jesus. It'll change everything about your attitude to work. All we have to do is be with him. Don't forget he's there. Go to dinner. Don't forget he's there. Take your lunch break. Don't forget he's there. It's actually a great witnessing tool. Esther, I do this all the time. Everywhere I go, people say, oh, who are you talking to? And instead of saying, oh, nobody. I was just talking to myself. I don't say, I always say, oh, well, I'm talking to Jesus. And that will open up so many doors to witness to the people. I mean, they may look at you, and some do. They look at you, oh, like you're crazy. But it'll also open up a whole bunch of doors because people are going to ask you questions. Talking to Jesus. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Ray on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, Hi, Ray. I uh, had a couple of hey. things uh, about your beginning on the uh, the uh, uh, walking out of movies and so on and so mm-hmm. forth because of GD, but. Um, uh, when it when it comes to is is there a difference when when out of I think it's attributed to sheer habit for some people that they just mm-hmm. let that come right out of their mouth as you know same as uh, uh, Hades hell whatever uh, you know instead of saying defecate they say that other s word. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, uh, GD versus JC, um, and and I don't know exactly. I have a person I know, and I was I was thinking, well, I would say friend, and then I'm thinking about choice of words and all. And when Jesus called us friends, uh, you know, uh, is is. Would I be improper because this person that I'm referring to uh, seems to have? I've I've approached them on it many different ways, <clears throat> as far as the uh, JC part, and uh, it's just so habitually ingrained in him that uh, I, I wonder if I would be missing calling them a friend it, it would would your idea of a friend be uh, uh one-sided or would it have to be reciprocal um uh relationship and and uh, so that's why i hesitate and i don't know where we're at as far as that goes but um i've i've really tried to figure what could i do and and i and i mentioned to him well you know and he's quite aware and and i see him really rarely anymore i mean he just doesn't come around because i said well that makes me very uncomfortable etc it's like you've done you know mentioned to people that that's not a good you know that doesn't bode well with me but uh so uh i have you know, he 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 feels as uncomfortable being around me as uh, I do with him carrying on like that. You know, and I I don't know how to relate to that. So I just thought I'd throw that out, and and especially as far as what do you consider a friend? You know, is it a one-sided or reciprocal, or you know, what 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 does a Christian do in that situation? And I'll listen on the radio. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate the opportunity. 
A couple of things. One, uh, we're to be a friend um, rather than to be somebody else's friend. Now, the distinction, I think, is important. If somebody's your friend, you want the best for them. If somebody is your friend and a Christian, uh, especially, you want the best for them. And so what you have to do to be a friend is correct them. Now, not to be offensive and not to be aggressive and certainly not to be a prude, but uh, here's the way I usually do it, especially as Christians, and you're right, it just flows off people's lips. At the same time, that doesn't make it right. So I always put it, or not always, but normally I'll put it in the form of a question. Uh, I would simply say, would you do me a favor? And they'd say, sure, what, what favor? You know, it makes me really uncomfortable when you keep using Jesus' name like that. So please don't. At least around me. And see, maybe nobody's ever challenged them on it. And if they get uncomfortable, the Holy Spirit, I promise you, will begin to work on their heart. Maybe they haven't thought about it. They might respond defensively. You know, oh, it's no big deal. I don't mean anything by it. God knows I don't mean anything by it. Well, the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you. And you can change those habits, and you can speak in such a way that your speech honors the Lord. It's not okay to keep taking Jesus' name in vain that way. And you may lose them as a friend, but you have still been a friend. And I really and truly hope that makes sense, not just to you, Ray, but to everybody. Because there's a big difference. You know, if somebody is yelling at their spouse or yelling at their children and they're a Christian, we, we, we've got to say something about it. Oh, don't talk like that, please. That's what it means to be a friend. You know, Jesus said that sometimes we're going to lose friends. But that has to be okay if we're doing it for the Lord. So I think it's really, really important. Now, there is no use. Now, again, when, when people say Jesus, like, you know, it's just a, a, a response to uh, something that happens or they, they drop something on their foot. Um, it's still not okay, but the intent behind the words matters a great deal. Yeah, they're just words, but the intent matters. And if their intent wasn't to blaspheme God, then we deal with it a little more lightly, but we still have to deal with it. On the other hand, and this is the difference in movies and TV, you know, again, I don't expect uh, the world. In fact, what Paul always says to me, whenever we're, we're watching a TV show and somebody goes, Jesus Christ, or something like that, um, Paul says, they're accountable. And we pray for them. Everybody's accountable. But what we've got to understand is that that it's just not okay. Now, for me personally, Ray, and I, I hope I made this clear uh, when I talked to the earlier question, um, there's just something about GD that cuts so deeply into my heart that that's a deal breaker for me. I'll sometimes give a TV series another chance. But if they do it again, I'm never going to watch it again. But, but to pay money, for a Christian to go pay money and sit in a movie where God's name is taken in vain that way, it's hard for me to understand. Yet, I don't make it a legalistic requirement for other people. It's not a test of their faith. But when that language is coming from people who claim to be Christians, that's when we've got to step in. You know, I do a lot of counseling, obviously, Ray, and um, most of the time counseling is not pleasant. It's not, you know, nobody's here just to tell me how great things are going in their lives. Um, I said that once, and then that next week I actually had a husband and wife come in, made an appointment, we sat down, and all I could think about was, not them. What's going on in their life? Oh, no, not them. They seem like such a godly couple, and I love them so much. And he said, well, you know, you said you never, never anybody makes a boy tell you how good things are. He said, we're here to tell you how good things are, how good God is. And I just was so blessed. But when they get angry in a counseling session, curse words come out. I'll say, please, not here. Jesus is here. 
please don't. And the, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. I know it's not. Don't be sorry to me. Apologize to Jesus. If this is what comes out talking to me, what comes out of your mouth at home when you get angry? What are your kids hearing you say? We've got to take responsibility, Ray. We've got to take responsibility. And and if you were my friend, and you are, I know you, and you heard me take God's name in vain, I would hold you accountable to say something to me. So that's, I think, the rule. I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to... I, oh, oh, Jim, oh, uh, we just had a call to the studio. Jimmy from San Antonio said, said he lost friends after the retreat. Uh, Jimmy, we will. We stand for Christ. That's exactly what's going to happen. But they weren't really friends, were they? They weren't really friends at all. Now, you can still be their friend by praying for them and by continuing to walk with Jesus, being a light, and Jesus is proud. He says, I call you friend. Not ashamed to call us brother. He's, he's, he's proud of us. He calls us his friend. He tells us everything. That's a pretty good trade-off. I lose humans for standing with Jesus and gain friendship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a really, really good thing. And he's pleased. So, Jimmy, that's just one of the things. When you're shining a light and... Other people walking in darkness, that's a bright light that they're trying to avoid. So you do the best you can. You be with Jesus, and you, you, you can kind of commiserate with him. So how did it feel when people deserted you? Because that's how I'm feeling right now. That's actually part of the testimony that you'll treasure later, Jimmy. The world saw so much of Jesus in you, they wanted nothing to do with you. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 KSLR. God bless you. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.